Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, January 6th, 2014. It's a big day here at Fighting for the Faith history. Yeah, it's kind of a historic day. The launching of the Fighting for the Faith video blog, it occurred today details shortly. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we slow down, and we stop, and we compare what people are saying that God you know, wants us to do or believe or think or whatever— to what God's Word actually says in context. This is a <clears throat> matter of discernment, if you would. So, like I said at the opening of the program, today is a big day in the history of Fighting for the Faith because we launched our video blog in you know, f- first ever installment of the Fighting for the Faith video blog. And the way you view it, the simplest way, is to go to fightingforthefaith.com and at the website, you will see, uh, you know, there right now um, on the homepage, a, a link to, you know, you'll see the video. And the name of this episode, the episode one is Carl Lentz colon image versus substance. And I talk about the celebrity pastor culture. And the problem that uh, there's a lot of celebrity pastors out there, including up-and-coming celebrity pastor Carl Lentz of Hillsong Church in New York City, where they spend a lot of time on their image. But when you check the substance of what they have to say, you find that not only is the substance lacking, but their substance proves they're not even qualified to be a pastor. Now, again, I know that's a big charge, but I answer all of that and take a look at all of that at the Fighting for the Faith video blog. So... Just so you know, we do not have any immediate plans for including the video blog in the podcast feed on iTunes. So the only way that you can view the video blog is online. And uh, the easiest way to do that is at the Fighting for the Faith website. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. And there you will see on the homepage a link 
to, you know, the, the first installment, Carl Lentz, Image versus Substance. And uh, would love for you all to take a look at it and uh, offer me your feedback. And I got to tell you, one of the challenging things about video and, uh, you know, I, I may have already talked about some of the travails, is that, n- number one, vi- video, it's a different medium, and it takes some getting used to. And uh, the difficult part for me was I noticed that it's very easy in video for there to not be really any substantive content. And that is a problem for me. That is an, that's a, like a major problem for me uh, because what I really want to do with the video blog is uh, is have that be the venue by which I offer some more in-depth teaching that uh, the the radio program doesn't quite give me the ability to do. And I like teaching using visual aids. Um, you know, th- this makes me actually something different than uh, past. Uh, you know, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Rosenblatt is like, you know, he is an anti-PowerPoint guy, um, but he's my mentor. But um, <clears throat> I'm not an anti-PowerPoint guy. But what I really want to do, if you're going to use a visual medium. Use it in such a way that um, the the technology in it really helps uh, people you know to understand a deeper content. So uh, you know, for me, it was difficult because I really wanted there to be good, solid content in the video blog, and because of time constraints. And b- believe me when I tell you this: this uh, first episode went a lot longer than I had hoped it would go. Um, I really want to keep them tight. Um, 10 to 15 minutes max is really what I'm shooting for. This one weighs in at a hefty 23 <laughs> minutes. So I, I, so I missed my goal by a few minutes, you know, <clears throat> Th- thankfully I didn't uh, offer any prophetic utterances to let us know, uh, what I prophesied would be <laughs> the length of the first episode of fighting for the faith. The second one will, will be shorter. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of this only because I already have the rough cut of the, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the script for the um, for the second episode, and so the idea is is that um, with each episode, I'm trying to cover a topic, cover it with some biblical content and depth, and then also offer homework is uh, probably the best way of putting it. So uh, this this episode, I offer you know I I, cha- I offer a homework assignment with links to two different pages. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea here is, is that the fighting for the faith video blog is a place to challenge people, um, challenge people, maybe, you know, maybe who are under the sway of a false teacher and to challenge them to go deeper and to investigate with an open Bible. Uh, you know, the, you know, the claims that I'm making regarding uh, the false teacher that they may be under the sway of. With the idea that I, the truth has nothing to fear from an open Bible. Only false teachers have something to fear from an open Bible. So uh, that's kind of the idea is that, uh, you know, there's – I wanted to have content, wanted to ha- to link to other resources. And uh, one of my hopes was that, you know, in looking at the five and a half years that we have been doing the Fighting for the Faith uh, uh, radio program – uh, there's stuff in our, our in our archives that I, I think are still valuable today, and I wanted to find a way to highlight a topic and then uh, point back to segments that we've done on the radio as a as a means of uh, utilizing you know the kind of the growing w- wealth uh, that is the uh, the fighting for the faith archives without having to make people swim through it uh, to find uh, what they're looking for. So. Hopefully that makes sense, but 
I'm very happy about uh, the end product. Um, people have been very uh, positive in the feedback they've given us and, and liked the, uh, what we put together. Um, I got to tell you, it steep learning curve. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with the first episode. And <clears throat> I'm also convinced that there's still room for improvement. So hopefully this will be one of those things that, uh, like radio, it took me a little bit of time to get used to. In fact, if you go way, 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 way back in the archives of Fighting for the Faith, you know, getting used to doing radio was uh, challenging for me. Um, You know, I I don't like talking to myself. Um, And now I do it several hours a day. But um, if you go all the way back into the archives, first year, year and a half of, uh, how long was it? It was less than a year. But the first year of fighting for the faith, um, a a large portion of that, you know, I had people in studio with me. Um, And the reason why is because I needed a face and I need somebody's face to look at uh, so I can kind of gauge their reaction to what I was saying. So that I had some kind because when you're working in radio um, and, uh, you you know, you're you're talking to yourself and you don't have any way of gauging what people's responses are. And then in learning how to do that, I could learn how to kind of sort of predict what people were thinking and and imagine uh, listener. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know how to put it. But uh, let's just say that, you know, I've. I I think I've gotten better at radio over the years, but um, doing this video thing, that's that's a whole different discipline, way different discipline. Um, it's part writing, part, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. So hopefully you will find the uh, new Fighting for the Faith video blog to be something that is helpful. Hopefully you will find it, uh, the, the segments that we do, to be worth passing along on uh, on your social media, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and uh, point people to the resources that we make available. And I'm going to try to change things up uh, on the video blog you know, over the weeks so that sometimes we'll do a segment uh, where we'll deal with a false teacher. Sometimes we'll deal with a topic straight up theologically. We'll just you know, dig into uh, what the Bible teaches on a particular doctrine, maybe like the doctrine of original sin or the deity of Christ, or uh, start fleshing out concepts regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it, you know, so we're going to try to change up how we do what we do on the video blog so it's not, it's not exactly the same thing as uh, the radio program. Um, and then, you know, we might deal with an apologetic issue and then circle back around and then also deal with, uh, you know, false teachers. So, tr- you know, try to kind of cycle through several different things that we can accomplish uh, using this new medium. And like I said, I hope that it will be a uh, <clears throat> a resource for you. And, uh, and uh, we do have plans in about a month and a half to uh, to utilize YouTube. Uh, for this, but uh, we've we launched the video blog on Vimeo. It's really kind of difficult to explain the reasons why. There's there's some very specific reasons as to why we launched on Vimeo first. Um, you know, this new format. Uh, we will be you know making it available on both Vimeo and YouTube in the future. But we're only sticking with Vimeo for like the first month and a half, maybe two months. Yeah, long story. But anyway, so again, fightingforthefaith.com, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on, you, know, you, you can see the video thing. And I've, I've made it, you know, if you type in the search bar video blog, you know, for instance, let's say you're listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith, and it's not January 6th, 2014. Let's say you're listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith, and it's March 8th, 
2016, which, you know, that's a possibility. You're thinking, wow, he's prophetic. No, I'm not. (laughs) I just, I can see how the traffic goes through the archives of Fighting for the Faith, and I know that that's a real possibility. And you're thinking, well, how do I get to it? Go to fightingforthefaith.com, and in the search bar, just type in Carl Lentz Image versus Substance, or type in video blog, and you know, in all of the uh, episodes that are tagged with the video blog will come up and then you can see it. <sighs> Does that make any sense? All right. So that, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Um, there is a theme, by the way, there is a theological theme for today's program, but let's just put it this way. I spread the theological butter really thin. Okay. Really, really, really thin. So if you're trying to figure out what the theme is, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, this will be one of those ones where uh, you can try to figure out. It is not a potpourri episode, although it might feel that way. Just want to say that. Okay, so what we are doing, what we are doing today on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we will begin, since it is you know now going on the second week of uh, 2014, it has become an annual thing here at Fighting for the Faith for us to play for you different so-called prophetic predictions for the upcoming year. Now, in years past, we've had Patricia King offer us uh, prophetic insights, uh, and also, of course, every year. You you, you can't, you you don't want to get, you actually don't want to plan your summer uh, vacation until you've heard Pat Robertson's predictions for 2014. So we will be listening to, we're going to start off with Pat Robertson's predictions for 2014. And of course, they absolutely have to be true because he went up to the mountains and, um, (laughs) and, uh, and and God spoke to him, you know, because everybody knows that once you ascend a mountain, God, you're way closer to God than, you know, than if you're in Death Valley in California. Uh, So Pat Robertson has ascended the mountain he has humbled himself, fasted and prayed, and believes that God has spoken to him directly. And so we'll be reviewing Pat Robertson's predictions for 2014. We'll switch gears after that. And um, this, we will be doing a Stephen Furtick update, and this is kind of a weird one. Um, Stephen Furtick and Elevation Church have put out a new... Um, I don't, it's a spoken word song kind of thing that's supposed to be super motivational. And the name of it is I Will Fight. And uh, we'll be listening to Stephen Furtick's latest <clears throat> audio inspirational Rocky Balboa type song-ish thing. And, uh, and then after that, we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to be listening to an extended uh, interview, a portion of an extended interview done a few years ago from a gal who uh, left um, uh, Hillsong Church in uh, Sydney, Australia. And she's since written a book, and the name of her book is People in Glass Houses. And we're going to be listening to her. Her, her name is Tanya Levine. And we'll be listening to an interview she did a couple of years ago after the after her book was published called People in Glass Houses. And the reason we'll be listening to her is because I want you to hear for yourself from somebody who has been involved with uh, Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia, um, and has subsequently left why they left. What was the problem? Uh, what were the things that they were concerned about? And and in listening to her story, and I don't want to say testimony, because in listening to her interview, 
it doesn't sound like Tanya has remained in Christianity. It, it, it I, I can't tell for sure if she has, uh, you know, joined up with a, uh, you know, a different Christian church or left Christianity altogether. I can't tell. Um, uh, clearly, um, her time at Hillsong, she considers it to have been toxic, uh, abusive, and uh, and that there are some significant problems there. And I will be passing uh, portions of her interview on to you uh, so that you can hear for yourself from somebody who was involved in Hillsong, who became disillusioned with Hillsong and saw the light and left Hillsong and hear from them uh, hear from her as to why she left and what the problems were. And I think this is significant because uh, her her um, critiques, uh, her problems that she's having uh, with Hillsong sound a lot like the same kind of problems that we hear from people who've left Mars Hill, uh, Mark Driscoll's church, or who have left Perry Noble's church, or who have left Stephen Furtick's church. Same kind of syndrome, people who I... Uh, she refers to him, and funny enough, I use the same uh, term, uh, the walking wounded, those who have been absolutely battered and beaten by abusive uh, vision-casting pastor types. You know, so in this case, it's Brian Houston. And, uh, and of course, this isn't accidental. The reason why I wanted to, to throw this in there is because I think this piece is important uh, for those people who are, are joining uh, the Fighting for the Faith listening audience uh, as a result of seeing the video podcast uh, regarding uh, Carl Lentz um, and so that they can understand there's there's some deep, deep, deep problems with the Hillsong. And then speaking about Hillsong, we'll be, uh, our, in hour number two, we'll be listening to a sermon uh, preached, you know, is that the right way of putting it? A sermon preached by Christine Kane. Uh, she's uh, one of the Hillsong pastrixes who's out, uh, out at large, and uh, she was uh, at Craig Rochelle's uh, LifeChurch.tv uh, not too long ago. And the name of the sermon we'll be reviewing from Christine Kane, again, Word of Faith Heretic. Um, you know, she is a, a pastrix of Hillsong Church and at large here in the United States, and has quite a following because uh, she's been promoted by, uh, well, Joel Osteen. Um, Rick Warren, um, you know, the, the list kind of goes on, kind of goes on and on and on. Um, even recently, um, Beth Moore, Beth Moore, uh, you know, tweeted out that, uh, she's spent some quality time with Christine Kane and even went to see Christine Kane preach at Joel Osteen's Lakewood. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, uh, and, and, you know, of course, I noted that uh, during the Christmas break, you know, that, uh, that Beth Moore had said that she went to Joel Osteen's church to hear Christine Kane preach. And I noted that, that, that this tells us a lot about Beth Moore's theology. Um, and, uh, and then people tweeted me back and said, uh, who's Christine Kane? Why is that bad? <laughs> So I thought we would uh, review another. We've done we by the way, we this is not the first Christine Kane sermon that we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith. But the name of the sermon we'll be reviewing is called Maker of Miracles. Maker of Miracles by Christine Kane preached um, just like a week and a half ago at uh, lifechurch.tv. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Now I do not have um Pat Robertson music queued up. So I, you know, I don't know exactly what to do here to introduce Pat Robertson. You know what, though? Right on the, on the fly, I've come up with an idea. So here's today's Pat Robertson update music. 
You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. All right, that's right. We've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. So if you're uh, trying to plan, you know, your summer vacation and, uh, you know, working ahead and, and looking at the months ahead on, you know, in your day planner for the year 2014, and, you know, you can't make any decisions because you just don't know what's going to happen. Well, <laughs> never fear, never worry. Pat Robertson is as predictable as a grandfather clock striking 12 at midnight, has uh, once again ascended the mountain in order to um, to let us know what God has told him about the upcoming year. So without any further ado, here is the 700 Club and um, Pat Robertson and his co-host as he discusses what he believes God directly revealed to him is going to be happening in the year 2014. Here we go. So every year, Pat, you go up in the mountains yes. and spend some time with the Lord and praying, and you were up there at your um, mountain home in Virginia. What did the Lord tell you for, for 2014? Well, I... Man, see, already we've got a problem. we got a huge problem here. Why on earth should I believe for a second, I mean, even one, that God, the Holy Spirit, because... Pat Robertson went to his mountain home in Virginia. That God, the Holy Spirit, was looking down from heaven and and went, oh, I'm so glad that he has ascended the mountain that I now am going to reveal to him um, <clears throat> what is coming for the year 2014. Why, why should I believe this at all? I, I, Pat Robertson, as far as I can tell and from what I've seen, doesn't exactly have a history of somebody who rightly handles and teaches God's word. So why would God, the Holy Spirit, bless him with prophetic insight for the coming year? You know what I'm saying? We continue. I spent a lot of time praying. This is a, a, a long time. Last year, there was so much ice and stuff, I couldn't even get up there. But this time, I was up there by myself in the mountain and... Uh, I had several days, mm. so... Uh, yeah, several, whole, I mean, whole, whole days. Whew, man, Pat Robertson spent several days, I mean, long, long time, you know, seeking God and, and looking for answers. Well, let's see what God uh, told him. I mean, you know, this video segment is only about four minutes or so long. So, I mean, what took days... For him to get from God is only going to take minutes to <clears throat> reveal. Uh, what was the message? I think what I said to the staff was love, that we've got to exercise. God is love. He's also... Yeah, that scripture says that. Light. Mm -hmm. And we have to... He's light, light. He didn't say that God is white. He says that God is light. Just want to make sure you didn't mishear. In fact, let me back that up. Otherwise, you're going to... Accuse him of saying something he didn't say. Eh? We've got to exercise. God is love. He's also light. Mm -hmm. And we have to walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Bible says that. Why would you need to ascend 
to your mountain retreat in Virginia to be able to hear that from God. Is he going to do this year? Well, I I offer that, Wendy, uh, with humility saying, uh, let's see what happens. Mm, Yeah, humility. Let's see what happens. You know what that sounds to me like? That doesn't sound like humility. humility, Sorry, that sounds like um, lack of confidence. He's not exactly sure, but let's see what happens. Let's see. He's going to hazard a prophetic guess, if you would. So what did he think he felt that he thought that God was kind of sort of telling him? Well, let's take a listen. You know, check it out. When the year's over, was I right or wrong? But number one, I think that the world is going to be in chaos this year. We're not going to have a unified world and I think so. And when have we had a unified world ever? <laughs> Whew. That Now, that's what I call one super safe prophecy. You know, that'd be like me saying, okay, all right, I, I have uh, taken the time to skip a meal. And, uh, and I fasted for the whole 20 minutes that I skipped the meal. And, um, and after skipping a meal, I feel... Like God is, wait a second, hang on, hang on, this isn't working. I, I got to go to the top of my, I'm going to go to the second floor of my house so I'm closer to God. Hang on. Okay, all right. So after skipping an entire meal, I've now ascended to the second floor of my home. Oh, yeah, the reception's much better up here. And I feel like God is telling me that winter is going to be cold and summer is going to be hot. Okay, yeah. So you put that one down. We'll see if I got that one right. So <laughs> so uh, Pat Robertson has predicted via God the Holy Spirit after ascending to his mountaintop retreat in Virginia where he spent a long time seeking the face of God and what God was going to do in 2014. First thing out of the chute is something we got from the Bible anyway, so we can kind of put that aside. Uh, But we're not going to have a united world. Really? You don't say. We continue. Sometime during the year, there's going to be some kind of a credit crisis, and I think China is going to lead the way. Okay, so there's a credit crisis coming, and China's going to lead the way. If you are into any kind of investments that involve... Chinese credit. Quick, get out. Like, oh, it would be a very sad, you know, that whole economy is like a house of cards, and when it starts falling, it can affect the entire world mm-hmm. because the Chinese purchases of raw material and goods, you know, you you look at all the markets, whether it's gold, whether it's silver. So if you got your money invested in Chinese futures, Quick, get out. Over whether it's copper, whether it's aluminum, whether it's steel, whether it's timber, all those things sucked in by the Chinese economy. So if they start having trouble, uh, it'll be trouble for everybody else. Uh, The other thing is I do believe that the Iranians will have a nuclear device before the end of the year. Okay, so chaos, ununited world. If you're into Chinese futures that involve credit, you know, get out of it now and quick. The Iranians are going to have a nuke. Okay. And uh, Obama is using a a tactic of containment. That's not going to work. We used to say we're not going to let them have it. Now they're going to say, well, we're just going to contain it. Well, that's that's a bad policy. Um, 
The next thing is I, I do believe that the Republicans will win control of the of the Congress. All right. So if you're a Republican, great news for you on the uh, you're going to win control of the Congress. Huzzah. OK. Now we're talking some progress here. This is some meat, meat on the bone. OK. Um, but they will not have a veto proof majority. So they'll be able to pass some stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, unless they can get Democrats to go along uh, with them, it, they cannot override a presidential veto. So they're going to still have to get some Democrats to work with them because it will not be an overwhelming veto proof majority. They will ha- instead have to. OK. The other thing is, I think that the president is going to be severely, severely hampered. I, I, I think uh, America is going to turn against him uh, much. So Obama is going to be the lamest of the lame duck presidents. Got it. All of this coming directly from God to Pat Robertson while he was in his mountain top retreat for a long time, seeking what God was going to do in 2014. Much more so than now, as that uh, affordable care thing starts biting hard as it is, he's going to be discredited terribly. And as a process, I think that he's going to... uh, Hasn't that already happened? Withdraw. He likes Hawaii. He spent a lot of time in Hawaii. And he probably figured, you know, okay, I've done my thing. Now let's go surfing. I mean, really, he's got a big airplane to ride around in. He's got a big staff. He's got a big expensive limousine to ride in. And he can just go uh, bopping around the world. And he doesn't have to govern, and I don't think he's going to because... Okay, so President Obama, according to God the Holy Spirit, through Pat Robertson, is going to bop around the world. Okay. Mm. He can't get anything through. Uh, What else? Uh, Didn't you write this down? I'm trying to think. I didn't... Spiritually speaking, did the Lord say anything about... Well, I think spiritually is more important. Notice that this lady on air with him. Spiritually speaking, did the Lord say this? God was not talking to Pat Robertson. And the rest of it, uh, there's going to be a great move of God. Mm. And the thing that God was impressing on me is what really the command of Jesus... Ordinary, if I can use that term, it's not just saying as an ordinary Christian. Every Christian is extraordinary. But just people in the pews, just regular Christians who are filled with the Spirit are going to do extraordinary things. There's going to be tremendous healing. People will be able to pray and have their prayers answered. Uh, There will be a move of God. So in 2013, ordinary Christians couldn't pray and have their prayers answered? Huh? It'll be the greatest year in the history of the church. It'll be mm, greatest year in the history of the church. I won't believe that until the church on as a whole repents of the whole celebrity pastor thing. The whole seeker driven movement gets rid of the word of faith heresy and stops watching the 700 club. You want to talk about a great move of the spirit. Uh, repentance along those lines would be a sign that there, there's been some great move of the spirit in the church. Unbelievable all around the world. And I think Islam is going to be in retreat. Oh, good. So it, the, the, the Muslims are going to retreat. What does that mean? Instead of advancing, it's going to be retreating. Uh, and, you know, onward Christian soldiers. Onward Christian soldiers? Are we starting a new crusade? Ah. Oh, man. So there you have it. There's your prophetic uh, predictions by Pat Robertson for the year 2014. And uh, 
course, if you haven't already, you know, planned out the, your year, well, now you know how to act accordingly, especially if, you know, if you're invested in Chinese futures and things like that. Folks, God the Holy Spirit is not talking to Pat Robertson. Okay, a lot of the stuff that he said is already happening. All he's done is thrown a prophetic spin on it, on trends that are already foreseeable by anybody who watches the news. <sighs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, again, like I said, I won't believe that there's going to be a great move of God the Holy Spirit until we see a great move of people within Christianity repudiate and reject false prophets and false teachers, well, like Pat Robertson. Y you get what I'm saying. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Stephen Furtick update and a Hillsong Church update and in hour number two, a sermon review from Christine Kane of Hillsong. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's... Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. 
Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your celebrity pastor. Especially if they have anything to do with Hillsong, vision casting, or anything like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute 
$8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's right. It we've we've upped it this year to 8.95 from 6.95 to help meet our continuing to grow expenses. So, but by the way, if you are already a crew member at 695, it doesn't automatically go up. So you, you don't have to worry about that. So it, it, those of you who are new crew members, just want to let you know, it's a little bit more expensive. It's been, you know, 695 since we started the program, you know, inflation and stuff like that. But if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right. Time for a Stephen Furtick update. This is going to be a musical update all the way. Strategically cut to the new style The beaver was fake and hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor And you're so vain Probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Who me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep? Well, you told me we were made to serve, and my path was all you'd need. But you twisted up the Bible so no one else had said a peep. I was afraid then I heard the real gospel, heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? All right, yeah, we're going to be uh, premiering a brand new Stephen Furtick song. Now, I got to tell you, you know, Stephen Furtick does not have the mad Casio chops that um, <laughs> William Tapley has. But uh, never fear, there isn't a single passage in the Bible that Stephen Furtick hasn't figured out a way to make about himself. And this song kind of reflects that narcissistical tendency of his. Hey, hang on a second, let me kill the music, although I love this part. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, see, I, I get distracted by bright and shiny things. Okay, so the name of the song that uh, you can download at elevationchurch.org. In fact, the website address for this, by the way, is elevationchurch.org forward slash I will fight, and I will fight is all squished together into one word. And you can download it. It's free. And let me read to you from the Elevation Church's website about this brand-new hit single put out by uh, Stephen Furtick. <clears throat> I will fight. This Christian life is not easy. 
I have an enemy that is real. I face battles that, that feel overwhelming. There are times when I'm tired and I want to give up. I will fight. I will fight is an audio track recorded by Pastor Stephen Furtick to help you get focused and to prepare you for the challenges ahead. Download the free track and build it into your daily rhythm. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is, is that this is kind of like Stephen Furtick's version of the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's, it comes from the leader, the Fuhrer himself, um, uh, Stephen Furtick. Uh, <laughs> and um, it, it, he wants you to, to pray, sing this thing every single day. Uh, so whether you're getting ready to work out or to suit up for your next game or in your, in, you're in the car in need of a quick lift, you have an unstoppable God whose strength and power can help you push through and continue the fight no matter what you are facing. Now, as I play this song for you, um, see if you can keep track of how many times the word I is used. Not I as in eyeballs, I as in me is used. So without any further ado, here is the world premiere of Stephen Furtick's latest audio hit single, I Will Fight. Are you ready? Here we go. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. So today, I will give no place to fear or failure. I will not accept a trace of apathy in my attitude or actions. I will reject complacency and embrace the greatness that God has planted inside of me. Mm, I will embrace the greatness that God has planted inside of me. Where does that does the Bible say that? Hmm. Nowhere. Okay. I will waste no opportunity to glorify God and maximize everything he has entrusted to me. I will fight. My battle is not against flesh and blood, but against a spiritual enemy who opposes me. So I will draw the battle. This spiritual enemy opposes Christ, not you. You're not the Messiah. And face my enemy with a bold determination. I will dismantle every argument and pretension that he presents, which contradicts what God has spoken. Yeah, by the way, that argument and pretension that God has spoken, that's, you know, if, if, the, if the enemy comes to you and says things like, oh, you're a gunky head or, oh, you're not worthy. You see, it's negative talk about yourself because Stephen Furtick has actually bought into kind of a light version uh, of the word of faith heresy. Uh, yeah, yeah, where your words create reality. And uh, <clears throat> we continue. My enemy fights against me because he fears me. And every time he reminds me of my past, I will remind him of his future. Yeah, now, who's this song about? Here's the funny thing. I remember the day when Christian you know, rock and roll music was still kind of a new thing. And you know what was fascinating about Christian music at the time is that it actually made an attempt uh, back in the day to actually, you know, sing something about Christ, to give glory and honor to Jesus, to you know, the subject of the... Um, of the praise song was the object of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, but see, I think this is this is the perfect Stephen Furtick praise song because the object, of, well, the 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 subject of the song is the object of his faith, and the object of Furtick's faith is Furtick. Mm-hmm. We continue. Every time I resist him, he must flee, and every time I speak the truth, every stronghold must surrender. I will fight. I, 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 mm, yeah, uh-huh, you, you do that. I will make no excuses, but through every obstacle, I will find a way. I will not procrastinate my progress. 
I will not procrastinate my progress. Wow. Oof. Whew, there's some boldness right there. <clears throat> not. I will not defer my destiny. I will, I will not defer my destiny. Good night. You know what the song reminds me of is um, that passage in, um, yeah, let's see here. Is it Isaiah chapter 14? Yes, I think it is. Isaiah chapter 14. Um, there's a, a kind of a, an old bad guy king from the Old Testament. And uh, the section of Isaiah chapter 14 technically is about him, but it kind of gives us a peek into the types and shadows uh, regarding um, Satan. <clears throat> Let me read to you. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. I in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the Most High. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the song. In fact, I'm, I'm saying, are you sure that passage, I, it was well, anyway. <clears throat> that, again, Isaiah 14, 12, sounds a lot like Stephen Furtick here. Waver when I'm weak. I will not cower when my circumstances take a turn for the worse. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I will fight. I will pursue overtake and recover everything that the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy in my life. This is like Stuart Smalley on steroids. And even if I lose the battle, I will win the war because I am more... Wait, wait, you are going to win the war? I thought Jesus already won the war. How are you supposed to win it? A conqueror through him who loves me. I am raised to life with Jesus Christ, and I reign with him because I look to him for strength. I will reject the lies that echo in my mind, telling me that I don't have what it takes. Yeah, there you go. The, the I don't have what it takes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That I cannot survive this trial, that my best is behind me, or that humiliation awaits me. The devil is a liar, and my God always causes me to triumph. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord, I will fight. I, I that's enough of that. Okay, you get the point. I mean, what we're dealing with here is... Basically, a, a Stuart Smalley version of, uh, you know, on steroids, you know, that of clear, clearly he's got a better keyboard player than William Tapley, though. Um, again, the uh, the object is all wrong. Uh, Stephen Furtick is still bent in on himself. The old Latin phrase from the old theologians was the incurvatus in se. He's just bent in, totally in on himself. I will ascend. I will. I, I, I. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and see, the problem is is that somebody who goes to, like, Furtick's church and thinks, oh, this is a blessing that Stephen Furtick has done this for us, that he's given us this great thing. So what's going to happen is they're going to go and they're going to try to apply this in their real life, okay? And so, you know, they're going to they're gonna lose their job. And so what are they going to do? They're going to take their little box of things from their desk and they're going to go out to their car and they're going to play this song to try to cheer themselves up. And it's just going to ring hollow. I mean, ugh. Bad theology, bad narcissistic theology. Uh, yeah, the guy has just got himself down, doesn't he? Anyway, moving along, we've got a uh, we've got to finish up here. We've got a uh, an update from Hillsong to uh, to end out hour number two, which requires me to do this.
That's right. Hungry like the wolf. Yeah, that's our Los Lobos update. Uh, so we got a Los Lobos update from Hillsong, and we are going to be listening to a portion of an interview done a couple of years ago from a gal who uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time at Hillsong in Sydney, Australia. Her name is Tanya Levine, and uh, she ended up writing a book that you can purchase, by the way, at, uh, at Amazon. The name of the book is People in Glass Houses, People in Glass Houses. And she's going to talk about um, her time and some of the history at Hillsong and uh, what she considered to be the problems there. See if you can note some of the recurring themes that we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, despite the fact that this uh, interview took place in August of 2007. Here, here we go. And Hillsong was very much geared towards money, recruitment, and fundraising. That's a cult uh, behavior, by the way. You know, any organization that is geared towards money, recruitment, and fundraising, um, that's one of the classic signs you're dealing with a cult mentality. I want to show you a bit of Brian Houston. This is from uh, Australian Story in 2005. I really have this belief that church should be enjoyed and not endured. Sadly, I think it is possible for church to be a very long hour. I want people to be able to be animated about their worship. And I love walking into the six o'clock service and bang, getting hit by the presence of God. It's cool. Tell someone next to you it's cool. Are you right in the book that even today when you hear Brian's voice, it makes you feel better? How does Brian That's funny. work for you? That, um, when you go to Bible college, apparently you, you learn that when you say, tell the person next to you, it's just a way for when the pastor's lost his thought train. <laughs> so turn to the person next to you and say, you look great. He's a very powerful speaker. He, his content is not um, very heavy. A powerful speaker, lots of image and delivery. No substance is what she's talking about there. If you haven't seen the Fighting for the Faith video blog episode yet, you need to. He's very charismatic and, you know, he's a voice of my childhood. He's a voice of, you know, leadership in my upbringing. So, you know, and he always sounds so happy and so pleased to be where he is and so proud of you that you're doing this thing with him, that you almost want to be a part of it all over again. Okay, so uh, that's kind of her talking about, you know, the insider scoop and how it made her feel when she was a part of it. But she's not a part of it anymore. We continue with the interview. It was 2002, and in fact it was a speech Brian made to the congregation, an important speech, which really started your, I think it's fair to say, your path to disillusionment. Can yeah. you talk us through that? I went to see uh, Pastor Brian talk about his father having been removed from ministry. And he proceeded to talk about, you know, having to have confronted his father over a serious, what he called a serious moral failure. These were allegations. Now, wait till you hear what the serious moral failure was. So this is going back in the history of Hillsong. Um, apparently, it was planted by Brian Houston's father. And there was a moral failing on the part of Brian Houston's father and it was discussed in a way that it wasn't actually the substance of that moral failing really wasn't talked about much at Hillsong. Let me back this up, and I want you to hear exactly what the moral failing of Brian Houston's father was. Here we go. Having to have confronted his father over a serious, what he called a serious moral failure. These were allegations of sexual offences against teenage boys, which was never actually named on the day. So there's a serious moral failure. 
He'd had to confront his father about it. His father had confessed. The national executive had then taken away his credentials, investigated and taken away Houston Senior's uh, credentials. And that um, Brian Houston himself was crushed. And he asked for the congregation to pray for his family, for his wife and his children. And the congregation did. They stood up and they applauded him. And that was the end of that speech. There was no reference to the people that have been abused or whose Absolutely lives may be Absolutely no reference to the victims. There was no stance taken on child sexual assault or child abuse of any form or care for children. Uh, there was no standing up and saying, look, we will not tolerate this in our congregation. And in fact, what it made me wonder was, if this is how they treat these kinds of issues on the most public level that they've got, how are they treating them on smaller, more, you know, in more private arenas? Great question. If this is how they're going to handle a serious, serious moral failing like sexually assaulting teenage boys and just kind of not talk about it openly and sweep it under the carpet and it all goes away, what are they doing with less offenses? Great question, Tanya. Great question. You raise a number of questions about Hillsong Church, and one of those is about prosperity theology, which is probably best summed up in the title of this book by Brian Houston, You Need More Money. That's right. The name of a book, a popular book written by Brian Houston, the name of the book is You Need More Money. Uh-huh. You Need More Money. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, Tanya Levine, she grew up in Hillsong. She was part of it. She knew it from the inside out, not from the outside in. So he's going to ask her about this book and the prosperity gospel and what it is that uh, she learned. Listen in. Can you explain to us what prosperity theology is? Prosperity theology is the belief the absolute belief that according to the Bible, according to the verses in the Bible, God wants you to be rich. He wants you to have prosperity in every area of your life, particularly your finances. And that to not be that way is actually to be disobedient to the word of God. Why would God want you to be rich? What does that achieve? You know, if the Christians can have all the wealth, then they can redistribute it as they wish to, you know, to the areas of poverty that they want to distribute it to, the areas of need that they see fit. Well, Hillsong uh, has, has a strong uh, record of distributing to charity. This is what Brian Houston said on Australian Story about where some of their money goes. There's various ways that we are able to fund the various projects and community programs that we're involved in, and they include everything from private enterprise to the church's own resources to members of the congregation to government grants. 60% of the total income goes towards helping people directly. From your viewpoint, is that the whole picture? It's very abstract. 60% of their money goes towards helping people directly. That could mean any number of things. Do you suspect that under closer scrutiny that there is something questionable about the way Hillsong operates? I, I can't argue that there's anything questionable. What I can argue that is questionable is, is the lack of transparency. So... You know, as much as they might say their books are open, everybody that I've interviewed who has asked to have a look at the books is told that they've got a bad attitude or they've got doubts. Uh-huh. Yeah, this sounds familiar to uh, the Stephen Furrick story. 
You know, they oh, they claim to be transparent, but yet no one's been able to actually see the books. Huh, weird. So you're suggesting that Hillsong is primarily set up for recruitment. And for, fundraising. And fundraising for itself, which would imply the faith that is apparently at its core is not necessarily a genuine faith. Is this more a question, though, of you having lost your faith rather than the church having lost its? It took a very long time to take my faith away from me. It was really the last thing I wanted to do was to admit that all of this stuff was true. My opinions have changed again since I've been researching and I've met so many people negatively affected by churches like this uh, that it just added up to be you know, too many people with the same kinds of stories. You refer to them as the walking wounded. Why are they wounded? I've found a, a very strong pattern in what happens when people show resistance. So everything's happy and everything's fine when you don't show any kind of resistance. If you show resistance to the pastors, the leadership, the program, the teaching, you're dealt with very severely. What does severely mean? Well, you know, in cases there are people who, who have been told that they're demonic and generally what has happened is that it, once people are showing enough resistance that is going to need to be quelled immediately so they're often ostracized and other congregants are told not to have anything to do with them because they've got doubts you know they're they're not for us they must be against us it's a very fundamentalist polarized point of view okay when you told Brian and Bobby that you wanted to write this book, because you did, what, what happened? What was the response? Well, I got a response from the general manager of Hillsong, who said that I had caused significant disruption, that I was never to go on Hillsong premises again, and that, no, they won't be helping me with the book. There you go. Information from a former insider at Hillsong. Sounds like the same stuff that we hear from Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Rick Warren, and others. Something seriously wrong in the Christian church with these celebrity pastors, don't you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, we come back. A sermon review from Christine Kane, a pastrix. From Hillsong, preaching at LifeChurch.tv. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, 
we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We'll be listening to a Christine Kane sermon. Christine Kane is a pastrix from, well, Hillsong Church. She's kind of their ambassadorial pastrix at large. Makes the round among the seeker-driven megachurches. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's uh, sermon comes to us via lifechurch.tv in oklahoma city oklahoma this is where craig rochelle is the vision casting leader and the sermon is by christine kane the pastrix ambassador at large for hillsong church and the name of her message is maker of miracles And would you be surprised if I told you that she's going to twist God's word and engage in narcissistic eisegesis and bad allegorizing of a text? You shouldn't be. Not only is she not biblically able to be a pastor, she shouldn't be preaching at all. 
um, she's going to twist God's word on top of it. Now, this always causes confusion for people. The reason being is because I'm going to be correcting her as if she should be preaching correctly when she shouldn't be preaching at all. So don't confuse my correction as some kind of a tacit approval of the fact that she's preaching when she shouldn't be. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Christine Kane and her sermon entitled Maker of Miracles. Here we go. I think she's introduced, though, by uh, Craig Rochelle. Let's do this right. Though. Let's, here we go. Welcome today to all of our Life Church campuses, our network churches, and those of you joining us from countries around the world. I got to tell you, you're going to be blown away and blessed today because I have one of the finest guest speakers in the whole world who's going to minister to you today. I want to tell you about Christine Kane, and then you're going to get a chance to go crazy. Christine is one of our closest friends. She and Nick are very dear to both Amy and to me. We love them more than I can tell you. They are from Hillsong Church based out of Sydney, Australia, but you cannot contain Hillsong Church because they are all over the world. Christine is one of the finest evangelists I know. She's one of the greatest teachers on leadership I know. She's an amazing author. You've got to pick up her book, Undaunted. If you haven't read it, you're missing out. She is the founder of A21, a ministry that we support and we love that helps rescue people from human trafficking. The chick can preach like nobody's business. Would you please join me in giving her a warm LifeChurch.tv welcome? Please welcome Christine Kane. Thank you, Pastor Craig. How, how excited am I to be here? What an honor. Thank you, Pastor Craig and Amy. Nick and I love you guys so much. And this is home away from home, y'all. And um, I know I'm talking to all the life churches, all our network churches, all the churches and people watching this around the world. But they tell me that you all say you're all here. And um, I'm from Australia where we speak the Queen's English. We say awesome. And um, I don't know, whatever location you're in, you all need to say awesome. Everyone say awesome. awesome. See, that sounds very dignified. Now, if you're from America, you need to say it like an American. Say awesome. Can you just tell there's a slight difference there? We say awesome, and you say awesome. And, um, you know, I just want to echo everything that Pastor Craig said. Uh, we are like family. Um, I'm part of Hillsong, although I don't sing. People get very disappointed. They think if a chick gets up from Hillsong, she's going to start singing Shout to the Lord. But if I sing Shout to the Lord, you'll all cry to the Lord. So that isn't going to happen. And um, we've been part of the leadership team at Hillsong Church for 25 years, and so really since I was one year old. And um, it's just continued. Nick and I have been married for 18 years. We have two beautiful daughters, Catherine Bobby and Sophia Joyce. And whenever I'm around Pastor Craig and Amy, I feel like I need to say they are the alpha and omega. I've got the beginning and the end. We only have two. We don't do six. And so that's kind of how it works, my part of the world. I'm going to jump right into the text today. I'm just like family, so I'm just an extended part of your global teaching team. So if you would turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter six. I'm both Greek and a woman, so I only speak three ways, hard, fast, and continuously. So you will not fall asleep um, and you better listen fast. So the Bible says in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. They're obviously not from Oklahoma City. But anyway, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and go to the Jerusalem food court and buy some hummus. I'm actually just checking if anyone is following the text with me. It's just how I sort of have a look. It is in the original Greek. I did check, but you know, you can do your own research. And so it says um, in verse 37, but he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. Everyone say broken pieces. Of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake, as you would. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and he said, take courage in his eye, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were- okay, now I'm going to pause for a second and point out something obvious. Well, at least it should be obvious, but it may not be for some. Notice she's reading through a large swath of a historical narrative. Okay, Now, this is where you have to understand, understand sound biblical hermeneutics. Now, if you have not already heard my lectures on how to not be schnookered and bamboozled and hoodwinked, you need to go to the Fighting for the Faith website and find those uh, episodes of uh, Fighting for the Faith on the lectures that I did a year ago on how to not be schnookered, deceived, and bamboozled and you know by you know hucksters and things like that. The, the reason why is because in sound biblical hermeneutics, there's kind of a, a you know a hierarchy, if you would, when it comes to um, understanding things uh, of this nature. And what I mean by that is this, is that when you have a historical narrative, you got to be really careful about the theology that you assign to it. Now, maybe the reason she's preaching through the historical narrative is because she's going to try to smuggle a theology in under the guise of preaching through a historical narrative text. But the way I like to explain it is this is that um, if you were somebody who 2,000 years ago happened to be wandering into the city of Jerusalem at the same time that Jesus was being crucified just outside the city walls, and you were to have viewed and saw Jesus actually hanging on the cross between the two thieves, um, what what would the theology of what was happening be? And you're going... um, well, wouldn't be Jesus be dying on the cross for my sins? And and I, you know, that would be a safe answer. But see, the thing is, is that let's say you didn't know that. And I asked you, okay, theologically, what's happening over there? That guy in the middle, he's, you know, literally about ready to expire on the cross. Theologically, what does that all mean? Now, some of you, you know, not knowing the gospel might say, well, that guy's being punished for his sins. He was, he's an evildoer and he's getting his just rewards. 
That might be a theology attached to it. And a good guess, by the way, that would be a great guess, but it would be wrong. Okay? Without a didactic text telling us what the theology of a historical narrative is, or within the narrative itself, a theology clearly laid out, you got to be very, very careful in how you handle a historical narrative so that you don't eisegete. That means to read into a biblical text something that isn't there, a theology that is not in that in any biblical text. So, Already I'm on edge here because she's reading a historical narrative, and hermeneutically, I know what she's up to. But I'm trying to help you see so that you can understand what she's up to. Let's continue. Amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Here in this text, we have two very familiar stories that many of us, if I guess you've been in church life at all, and even if you haven't, have come across a story of, of Jesus multiplying the fish and loaves and Jesus walking on water. Normally we would teach this as two separate stories. But I don't think you can separate verse 30 from verse 52 because the story starts before the story and ends after the story, as is often the case. We start up on a mountainside and the Bible says that the disciples had been teaching all day and they came back to Jesus and they gave an account of everything they had done and taught. No one can just go and teach whatever they want to teach. They've got to come back and give an account to authority and leadership. This is what I've been teaching. Is it all okay? And so they were hungry. There's nothing ever incidental in the text that tells us that the disciples had not eaten. So they were really, really hungry. Jesus said, we need a break. We need a rest. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go over to the other side and we're going to have a little break. Now, something interesting happens. Before Twitter, before Facebook, before Fox News, before CNN, before Global Satellites, before LifeChurch.tv, because you're everywhere, it's a little bit like God, you're just omnipresent. And so before all of that, something happened where a crowd got there on foot before Jesus ever got there in a boat. There was obviously something so compelling, something so magnetic, something so attractional about this man, Jesus, that people would end up getting somewhere before he ever got there. That didn't come after the fourth worship song. They were there before he ever got there waiting to hear from Jesus. It's taught me that when Jesus is in the house, you can't keep people away. People don't care how far they're going to park away from the building. They don't care what seat they're going to get in. They just want... Weird. So she's likening Jesus here to a Hillsong megachurch pastor and her experience at Hillsong, the megachurch in Sydney. That's creepy. There and listen to Jesus. So Jesus begins to teach. Now the disciples are already freaking out because they know when this guy starts talking, that he doesn't stop. And they're thinking, you know, we've never really understood much of any of the other parables he's ever talked about. So we need to tell him that the Jerusalem food court's going to close down because we are hungry. And this is what leaders often do. When they have a problem and they're hungry, they go to the leader leader and they say, um, it's the people's fault. The people are hungry. Nowhere in the text does it say the people are hungry, but we know that the disciples have not yet eaten. So they go and blame the people for what they really want. They- Isn't it weird that she's trying to turn this into some kind of a leadership fable thing weird be quiet so that they can go and eat and so they say the people are really hungry so this is what jesus does because every time he's getting ready to do a miracle and he prepares to do a miracle he starts right here he says well you give them something to eat and they sit there and they think like many of us we go to jesus with a prayer request and we pray about something and we don't realize that we are the answer to our own prayer so jesus says you do something about it now what we think he has said is why can't you do anything about it 
We obviously misheard him and we begin to give him a list of reasons of why we can't. The disciples start saying, this is going to take eight months of a man's salary. We don't have enough food. You know, my mother didn't pack an extra lunch for 5,000 people. There is no way that we're going to be able to feed them. And so they begin to give Jesus a list of why not. So often we do that. I remember when we had a sense, Nick and I, to start the A21 campaign. Now we were li- now notice. That, I mean, that was a, just a seamless transition from the text to herself. This text has nothing to do with her and her husband and their A21 network or anything like that. Nothing whatsoever. And there was a weird phrase she said just a few seconds ago about that you're the answer to your own prayer. That's not what this text is about either. So now she's reading herself into this text. She's, you know, she's read it, and now she's really not giving a coherent exegetical um, understanding of the text. So she's pulled out of the historical narrative and is talking about herself. But this text has nothing to do with her, or you know, or me or you in that sense. We had just had our second born. I was forty-one years old, and we already. We're traveling around the world and, and helping to build churches. And we were the network pastors for the Hillsong Church. And so we had a lot going on. And I remember when there was this sense that, Christine, I want you to do something about it. You do something about help, helping to rescue. So there was this sense. So apparently God, the Holy Spirit, speaks directly to her. See, this, it's just like when Jesus asked the disciples, you, or said, you do something about the fact there's nothing to eat. No, it's not at all. And uh, why should I believe that God the Holy Spirit is speaking to Christine Kane or has spoken to Christine Kane? Why? She is a pastor despite the fact that God's word forbids her to be one. Why would God the Holy Spirit inspire the biblical authors to make it clear that men are the ones who are to be pastors and then turn around and, and just ignore what he inspired the uh, the apostles to write, and then turn around and then give this woman, you know, du- direct revelation and dreams and visions and stuff like that. That's not how God the Holy Spirit works. She does not obey God's word. She does not listen to God's word. She does not heed God's word and claims to be receiving direct revelation from God. She's deceived. That is not how the Holy Spirit operates. From human trafficking, I remember going to God, but God, I can't. But God, I'm a woman. But God, I'm 41. But God, I've just had a newborn baby. But God, I live in Sydney, Australia. Do you know how far that is from Europe? And, and I could imagine God's in heaven going, you know, I didn't know she was a chick. Gabriel, did you, did you know that she was a woman? Wow. Did anyone know Chris had a baby? Did we miss the shower? Did we miss the baby shower in heaven? I've got no idea. Um, does anyone know where Australia is relative to Greece? Could someone bring me a GPS? Could someone, Peter, get me a map book? You know, God, I don't have a spare $10 million to run there. Well, you know, and God, Greece is single-handedly about to bankrupt the whole planet. You're welcome. And so that's where you want us to start. And I imagine God's in heaven. Oh, my God. No, I am God. I'm having an existential crisis, all three of me. I'm having a crisis up here economically. What am I going to do? Did you all know that? Now, I have no idea what the what you would call what it is we just heard, but it serves no true exegetical function. Okay, because whose life is she exegeting? Her own. And she's basically talking about her imagination and things like that. This is all part of deception. This has nothing to do with sound biblical exegeting of the biblical passage. It's about to have a schizophrenic attack. I don't know who Mr. Dow Jones is, but he's down three points one day, up four points the next. I really don't know what's... But this is God. 
This is God who woke up one day, burped, went, earth, oops, look what I did. That's God. He is still in control. Whatever is happening politically, socially, morally, economically, personally, God is still on the throne. He is still sovereign. Yeah, and she's shouting all of this in conjunction with supposedly the fact that God directly told her to start some kind of a network. And he is still God. So I said, but God, but God, I can't. And God's kind of rolling his eyes going, I never even asked you if you could or you couldn't. It wasn't a question. I said, you give them something to eat. So then as God stops listening, I love this with Jesus. He, he listens to them, give their excuses, why not? And then in verse 38, he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. It's almost like he didn't even listen to all their excuses. Why not? He says, how many do you have? Go and see. He sent them back into the crowd to go and see what they do have because the ingredients for a miracle are always in our midst. We always have the ingredients for a miracle. It's just that they're in seed form and we devalue the seed because it does. Where in the Bible does it say that all of the ingredients we need for a miracle are in our midst and they're in seed form? What passage of the Bible says that? Answer, not one, especially Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 teaches nothing of the sort. She's inserting things into the biblical text that are not there, in, in a narcissistic way, of course. But we continue. A harvest, and so we think we have nothing to work with. But Jesus cannot multiply what we do not recognize. So he says, go and have a look. Where in the Bible does it say Jesus cannot multiply what we do not recognize? What passage of Scripture says that? Not one. There isn't a single passage of Scripture that says this nonsense. She's making it up and inserting it into the text. Now, let me give you by way of contrast um, what Dr. Paul Kretzmann's commentary, which is a popular commentary written on a lay level, um, what what he wrote about this text. And let's just do a little comparative work as, as we listen to the sermon. But from the feeding of the 5,000, from Dr. Paul Kretzmann's commentary, Mark chapter 6, verses 33 through 44, and you'll notice that this is written in the King James, you know, this is key to the King James Bible. Here's what it says. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and out went them and came together unto him, unto Jesus. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now here's the commentary part. Jesus actually managed to get away in a boat alone with his disciples, but his embarking was nevertheless witnessed by some people, and his identity was all too well known in the district, probably the neighborhood of Bethsaida. Besides, they noted and drew correct conclusions as to the course which they were taking in their boat and part of the country toward which they were heading. And the news was rapidly passed along the line while Jesus, therefore, was slowly sailing across the sea. The multitude swelled by additional inquisitive people from the cities on the northwest shore made the trip around the north side of the lake afoot, a distance of some 10 miles. They walked very rapidly. They ran together and came ahead of them, and they beat them to their destination. Curiosity, for the most part, 
what an, in, an immense factor in the destiny of the individuals of the nations. And so it happened that when Jesus went out of the ship, he saw a great multitude gathered together awaiting him. He did not stop to analyze the motives that might have prompted these people to come out into the uninhabited country. His Savior's heart felt only the deepest pity for them. They were as sheep without shepherds. In all of the synagogue of Galilee, there were rabbis and scribes, but the food which they supplied to the congregation was a diluted pap and treacle of the matter which the Jerusalem schools were teaching the young theologians. So Jesus, he, again, the, the verse talks about the fact that they were sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus, so Kretzman keys in on the fact that they're getting pap and pablum from the pharisaical rabbis, and Jesus has compassion on them, and he's what he's going to do, he's going to teach them. So the people were in a state of greatest spiritual neglect, and so the great friend of sinners forgot his own weariness, his urgent need of rest, and he began a long sermon to them, and he taught them many things that pertained to their salvation. So Jesus dives right in and preaches a sermon to them, okay, teaching them many things. Next... Okay, this next section is the testing of the disciples. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country or about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said to them, Give ye them to eat. You give them something to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they said, Five and two fishes. So in this story, as in many others, the Holy Spirit has permitted the evangelist to record such parts of the conversation as he remembered. The hour had advanced very far, and it was late in the day when the disciples thought it their duty to interfere and to remind the master of the necessity of taking care of the body also. There is a certain amount of impatience contained in the address to Jesus. The place is uninhabited. The hour is advanced. He should dismiss them. They could go on, go to the farmhouses and the little villages situated within a radius of a few miles and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus takes the opportunity of testing their trust in his ability to help in this emergency. He urges them to take care of the unbidden guests by skillful questioning. He brings out the fact that they have been figuring the number of loaves that might be uh, bought for 200 denarii between 33 and uh, $34, and that they have found the provisions on hand to amount to five loaves of bread and two fish. The concern of the disciples at the inquiry of Jesus is illuminating as showing the weakness of their faith. So what's going on here? Jesus is testing their faith, their trust in him. This is all from a good, proper exegesis of this passage. So then we get to verse 39, the feeding of the, of, of the 5,000. And so he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did uh, all eat and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Now, nothing could be more expressive than the contrast afforded here between the helpless puttering of the disciples and the cool, 
majestic bearing of Christ in taking charge of the situation. He had the disciples give orders that all should recline on the grass in orderly groups. For just at this place there was a meadow near the shore of the lake, and they sat down in groups as in garden squares, at or, uh, as orderly as rowers planted in rows, a fine bit of vivid description. And then Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fishes, and having looked up to heaven, spoke the blessing upon the food. Note, he broke the bread and passed it on for distribution. He divided the fishes and had them taken to all in a similar way, and under his hands the amount of food grew. The miracle is mentioned by all four evangelists and was one that could not be counterfeited, a secret supply being out of the question. It was a full proof of the divinity of Jesus. All ate and all had enough to eat, and not only that, when the fragments were gathered into the large carrying baskets used by the people of Palestine, twelve of these were filled, and the number of those that had eaten is expressly stated, it being so easy to count them as they sat in groups, five thousand men without women and children. So there you go. Who is this text about? It's about Jesus. What does this miracle prove? The divinity of Jesus. It is a true miracle. And it harkens back to the days when the children of Israel were in another wilderness place, wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and God fed them manna from heaven. Here, Jesus feeds them bread by multiplying loaves and fishes. This is a miracle that points people to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus, in this text, tests the faith of the disciples and their trust in him. And you can already see things are not good. The disciples are waffling in their faith. But Jesus calmly, majestically, in a godly fashion, because that's who he is, takes control of the situation and performs a miracle that shows that he's the Messiah and that he is none other than God in human flesh. And that's the right way of preaching a text like this. But well, let's just put it this way. Christine Kane, number one, shouldn't be preaching. Number two, wouldn't know how to preach this way if her life depended on it, because she's not about preaching about Jesus. She's really about preaching about herself. We continue. Sends them to the crowd to have a look, because the ingredients are in there. Now, they go around looking. Now, the text has told us in verse 38 that that day there were 5,000 men counted, because in that time in history, that's how you counted. You counted according to the men. But theologians and historians would say, if, if you accurately counted women and children, and the other Gospels record besides women and children, if you include women and children, which I love to do, I am a woman, I was a child, so if you include those, they say it would not be unrealistic to say there was at least 15,000 people on that mountainside. So they go in and begin to look amongst 15,000 people, and one little boy gives his five loaves, his, his five pieces of Ezekiel bread, his two little anchovies, that's all he has. He gives it up. Do you think in a crowd of 15,000 that there was only one little boy with a packed lunch? Oh, I guarantee you there were more packed lunches that day. But this is what happens, and it happens to us in church every week, and it happens to us in life, that we see the magnitude of the problem, that the disciples went around the crowd and they said, anyone got a lunch? So we've got to feed 15,000 people. Jesus isn't going to stop until we feed everyone and there's a crowd of 15,000. Who's got a spare lunch for 15,000? What we do is we look at the enormity and the magnitude of the problem. And we think, because I can't do everything, I'll do nothing 
instead of the one thing that would activate something. Jesus never asks us to do everything. What? This has nothing to do with Jesus asking you to do anything. Jesus didn't ask you about the loaves and fishes. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything in this passage except for believe that he's the Messiah and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. What are you talking about? Pastor stands up and uh, tells us to bring the tithe into the storehouse. He's not asking any one person to do everything. This text isn't about tithing. What are you talking about? All of us to do the one thing that we can all do, which is bring our tithe into the storehouse. When we have a need. Yeah, those Hillsong folks sure do seem to be about money, don't they? As, as well as the megachurch pastors like Life Church TV. Hmm, weird, huh? We're not asked to do everything when, when it came to helping to rescue 27 million slaves. God wasn't asking us to do it all. But He said, What's the one thing that you do have? And if you give me that one thing, I'll be able to do something absolutely miraculous with it, Christine, but I need the one thing. So that little boy gave it. Now, did you notice who gave the ingredients for a miracle that I'm talking about today? It's quite fascinating to me that it was the little boy that was uncounted that provided the the ingredients for the miracle that counted. The text tells us that there were 5,000 men counted that day. So a little boy who was not... Now, here's the weird part. Um, Let me read the text again from the ESV. Okay, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot in all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now pay attention. Who who gives up their lunch, okay? And when he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in the groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now notice here, okay, again, I know that this miracle occurs in all four gospels. But she didn't read from this text that a little boy gave up his lunch. Because this particular telling of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 doesn't say anything about a little boy, does it? No, it doesn't. Okay, we continue. What I've discovered, church, is that it's always the ones that everybody else discounts. It's the ones that everyone else thinks doesn't count. It's the ones that everyone else thinks your life will never amount to anything. You are not educated enough. You're not talented enough. You're not gifted enough. You're not smart enough. You're not resourced enough. Everyone else discounts us. You are not a celebrity enough. You don't know the right people. Jesus says, I might just be able to use that person that everybody else has discounted, the one that society thinks doesn't count, because I know that I'll get glory from that life because everyone will know that they could never have done it in their life. God always takes the ones that everyone else discounts. You know who packed his lunch that day? I promise you, if you know anything about society at this time, it was not his father. His mother packed his lunch. Do you think when that woman got up that day and packed... Again, I just find it weird that she's making a huge point here, but the text she read doesn't say anything about a little boy. She stuck it in there. Weird and some Ezekiel bread, she thought she was doing anything that was world-changing. Yet she was packing the ingredients for a miracle in that little boy's lunch that I would be talking about 2,000 years later. 
I don't know, every day when you're driving your kids to school, you perhaps could be homeschooling your kids. You could be the cool house where all the kids come over after school and you're speaking life instead of death over those young people. Often when you think what you're doing is insignificant, your job doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. I want you to know that everything you do, everything you say, everything you think contains the ingredients of a miracle that can change generations. Don't devalue. This text doesn't say that at all. She's literally sticking a theology into this passage that isn't there. She's making this passage teach something that it doesn't teach. This is classic, eisegetical, eisegetical Bible twisting, sticking stuff into a biblical text that isn't there. Of the seed that you have. Don't ever, ever devalue it. And so we start. And then what do they do? They bring it to Jesus. Now, could you imagine their frustration when they brought that to Jesus? Five loaves and two. I could imagine them, especially Peter. See, Jesus, I told you, these people are really stingy. We should have sent them to the mall. Because Jesus, if you did what, if you did what we said, everyone wouldn't be here hungry anymore. Because now, Jesus, it's impossible. Now, Jesus, all you've got is five loaves and two fish. Why didn't you do what we said? And how often are we like that with God? We bring the small thing to him where the situation is impossible and we think the impossibility excludes God from having any ability to do anything. What are you talking about? This text doesn't say any of that. Not even turn up until it's impossible. You don't need God while it's still possible. While you are smart enough, while you are resourced enough, while you are gifted enough, while you are talented enough, why do you need God? In fact, for many of the things that we ask the Lord's help for, the things that we say, I want a miracle for, they're not miracle issues, they're management issues. Most of us say, Jesus, I, oh, you know, I need a financial miracle. No, honey, you just need to stop spending more than you earn. Very simple. That's it. And then God could turn up. For the financial miracle. Jesus, I I need a health miracle. No, you just need to stop eating the Krispy Kremes and get on the treadmill. And you know what? Now it's very quiet. (laughs) So a lot of what we're asking miracles for, we're not even in the miracle zone yet because God says, oh no, that's in the management zone. You can do that yourself. I'm not even turning up till we need. This text doesn't teach anything about miracle zones or management zones or anything of the sort. This isn't about some miracle that God wants to perform in your life or some task that Jesus is calling you to. It's not about that at all. This is a historical narrative that took place in a real place in time, and this is about Jesus and him feeding 5,000 people miraculously and testing the faith, the shaky faith of his disciples. This is not about some task that Jesus is calling you to at all or the miracle zone versus the management zone. This is nonsense. I'm not even turning up till we need the miracle. So impossible is where God starts. We think the impossibility of a circumstance disqualifies God from being able to do anything when that's what makes him God. God is not limited to our time and space continuum. God is supernatural. God turns up when everything else has been exhausted. I don't know what your need might be today. You might have a physical need, a financial need, an emotional need, a relational need. And in the natural, it seems like it's impossible. There is no way forward. I want you to know you're poised for a miracle today. That's where Jesus turns up. Impossible is where he begins. This text doesn't Teach that. What are you talking about? It's impossible with man. It's possible with God. With God, all things are possible and nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. So he begins. And do you see what he does next? 
They bring him five loaves and two fishes, and the Bible says he gave thanks. Jesus gave thanks for what would never be enough. He began to bless what was not enough. How often do we, instead of bless our not enough, curse our not enough? Really? So, oh, Jesus, by way of example, blessed the not enough so that you need to bless the not enough in your life so that then the miracle can happen in your life too. This Nowhere in Scripture does it promise that Jesus is going to multiply anything in your life to perform some kind of a miracle and you need to sit there and bless a not enough. This house, I hate my boss, I hate my job, I can't stand my marriage, my kids are just losers. It's amazing to me. How when we are disillusioned or we're disappointed or we're discouraged because things haven't worked out how we wanted and we feel that God didn't come through in our timing or God didn't come through in the way we wanted him to come through, we begin to murmur, grumble and complain and curse the very things that contain an ingredient for a miracle. And God says you curse the things that contain an ingredient for a miracle. Where in the Bible does it say that you have the ingredients for a miracle sitting right there and you need to bless them so that the miracle can happen? Why don't you begin to bless your not enough instead of curse it? Do you know how your whole year would change if you began to change your confession? Instead of going, I hate this house, you could begin to just say, you know what, this might not be where we are ultimately going to end up living, but I thank God right now we've got a roof over our head. This may not be the job that I want in the long term, but I thank God right now we've got some food on the table. Maybe my marriage isn't where I want it to be, but I thank God right now that we're both working on this thing. Maybe my kids are not serving the Lord in the way that I'm believing God that they will, but I thank God that the hound of heaven is chasing them down and they're going to end up back in the house of God and they're going to be serving God. How much... Would our lives change if we began to bless and not curse? Because we expect God to bless what we curse. And Jesus, we expect God to bless what we curse? What are you talking about? This text has nothing to do with any of this. <gasps> this is... <laughs> what, what, what's the phrase? That, uh, Textual abuse. We're dealing with a major form of textual abuse going on here at the hands of Christine Kane. By blessing what was never going to be enough, knowing that if you bring your not enough into the hands of a God that is more than enough, he will do such a miracle. He blessed it, what was never going to be enough. And then did you see what happened? The miracle of multiplication did not happen until he broke it. The miracle is in the breaking. Now, I'm going to point something out here. It wasn't that long ago, probably less than two years ago, that um, Robert Morris of the Blessed Life fame preached his Blessed Life sermon at LifeChurch.tv. And um, in his little shtick that he does on this passage, he claims the, that the loaves and fishes didn't multiply until the disciples you know, they, Jesus gave them the food and told them to go distribute it, and they wouldn't multiply until they had distributed almost everything that was in their basket, and as soon as their basket was empty, it would fill up again. Th that was what he claimed, which is a completely preposterous claim. But I, re I say this just to remind the folks at LifeChurch.tv about what Robert Morris did with this text, and note the fact that Christine Kane is saying the exact opposite thing that Robert Morris said. It's absolutely fascinating. Jesus kept breaking the miracle kept multiplying. I don't know if there's anyone in this room besides me 
that knows what it is to be broken. I don't know if anyone's ever had a broken heart, if anyone's ever come from a broken family, if anyone's ever had a broken body, if anyone's ever had broken finances or broken relationships or a broken life. And so often we... Yeah, everybody does. Everybody experiences those things because that is, well, the fruit of our sin. This is what we face in this broken world because we're under a curse, because we're born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. This is what happens to all of us. And yet she says, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. And you're sitting there going, oh, 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 it's happened to me. It's happened to me. Oh, she's preaching. This is just a trick, some kind of weird manipulation that's going on here. Brokenness disqualifies us from the purposes of God and from what it is that God wants us to, wants to do with our lives. We think, well, God can't use me. I was abused. Or God can't use me because I'm divorced. Or God- now, I'm going to back this up a little bit. The reason why is because, oh, not only is this manipulation, it is interesting manipulation. Because he, here's the question I have for you. What is it with evangelicalism and their emphasis on being, quote, used, unquote, by God, okay? Because it's the weirdest thing. I don't quite get it. You know, the my only, I, I have to kind of speculate here, is that, you know, that this somehow, quote, being used by God, unquote, is some kind of subjective proof that they're, that they're okay with God, that, that somehow everything is all right, that, uh, that 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 there's that you know the God in them are okay, and if God's not using you, then oh no, something's terrible wrong. There's sin in your life or something, and and maybe you're not even saved. I, that's what I'm suspecting is going on here, but uh, that's not where I want to put the emphasis as I analyze this segment. I want to point something out here. Whether or not quote God uses you, okay, in a way that you know can somehow give you affirmation that you're saved. The, the question is this, is that since all of us, not there isn't a single one of us, is not qualified to be used by God. Not me, not you, not Christine Kane, not even the Pope. Okay, there's nobody who isn't a sinner. We all be sinners big time. And if God gave all of us what we deserve, we'd all be in hell right now. Because every single one of us, all 6.5 or 7 billion of us on this planet are all born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. And if God gave us all what we deserved, well, not only would God not use us, he'd just all he'd just punish us all to death. So what on earth could we possibly do to make it so that God would, quote, use us? Answer, there's nothing we could do, okay? So how does one go from being dead in trespasses and sins to being an instrument of God for the preaching of the gospel, for teaching the faith, the building up of the body of Christ, for caring for others, okay? Because I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that God does use people, but the emphasis on the using here is the weird thing to me, okay? God uses people. God has used people in my life. God has used other people in your lives, okay? You get what I'm saying. So how do you go from dead in trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God to being in the grace of God? The answer is this, penitent faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
The law must be preached to sinners to strip them of their self-righteousness and show them that they stand condemned before God. And then the gospel must be preached, the sweet good news that Christ has died for our sins, the sweet good news that he can forgive somebody even as sinful as me, as sinful as you, and that his death on the cross has propitiated the wrath of God in totality and is sufficient for our salvation, right? So penitent faith and trust in Christ, it's God's working in us to bring us to penitent faith in him by which he then humbles us, washes us, forgives us, sanctifies us, and makes us into instruments to be used for his purposes. I don't have a problem with that. But notice here how she talks about this and notice what is missing. She'll talk about people not being worthy because they've committed this sin or that sin. Well, yeah, that does make somebody unworthy to, quote, be used by God. But she doesn't talk about the cross and the forgiveness of sins and repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins or bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance in, you know, in, in living out a sanctified Christian life. She doesn't talk about any of that. She skips over all of the major doctrines and categories theologically of repentance, faith, forgiveness, the propitiation won by Christ on the cross and the sanctifying work of the Spirit and just skips over all of that, you know, kind of leapfrogs over it and you know, doesn't even mention it and gets right on to something else without mentioning the cross. You can't do that in biblical Christianity. So I'm going to back this up a little bit so you can hear the context. We continue. If anyone's ever come from a broken family, if anyone's ever had a broken body, if anyone's ever had broken finances or broken relationships or a broken life. And so often we think that brokenness disqualifies us from the purposes of God and from what uh, our sin does. Wants us wants to do with our lives. We think, well, God can't use me. I was abused, or God can't use me because I'm divorced, or God can't use me because I committed just such great sins in my past. And what we try to do through our shame and our guilt and condemnation that the enemy heaps on us, we try to hide those broken places. We try to hide those scars. We try to hide it all and think. Isn't the solution to all of that forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Christ? Why aren't you talking about that? If I could just wear some sort of mask and just get through this thing called life, I wish God could use me, but he can't because I'm so broken. But I want to tell you today that it's from those broken places that you are qualified to be used by God. It's not from... Oh, that is blasphemy. No, it is not from those broken places that you are qualified to be used by God. That's absolutely blasphemous. It is through the broken body of Jesus Christ bleeding on the cross for your sins that you are qualified to be used by God. What she just spoke is utter blasphemy. What I just said is the truth. This she's preaching a completely crossless, repentanceless, forgivenessless Christianity and saying that it's because of your brokenness in your sinful condition that that's what makes you worthy to be used by God. No it doesn't. That's what makes you worthy of hell. What she's preaching is rank heresy. We continue. It's that God is using me to make a difference in the world. It's from those broken places. It was the child that was left in a hospital unnamed and unwanted when I was born. The girl that was sexually abused for 12 years at the hands of four men. 
the girl that, blew up, that grew up in the poorest local government area in, in my state, in Australia, where I grew up, the marginalized ethnic migrant, second generation Greek girl, so marginalized because of my ethnicity and my gender, it's that girl that God took all those broken pieces, adoption and abuse and poverty and said, you know what, Chris, what happened to you isn't good. And the enemy tried to still kill and destroy your life. But if you allow me to, I will take all those broken fragments of your life and I will weave them together and I will work together for good the things that the enemy meant for evil. And God has woven them all together. And God has taken an unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted girl and not only rescued me, but he's now using me to rescue others that are bad. And what on earth does that have to do with Jesus's feeding of the 5,000? Not one thing. Sex slavery, it would be just like God. I feel like Joseph today, where I stand in front of, he stood in front of his brothers and he said, you know what, you meant this as evil against me, but God meant it for this very purpose, to save many people alive. And church, I want to tell you, the thing that you thought was going to kill you, the thing that you thought you would never recover from, God could never use you in business again. He could never use you relationally again. That's the very thing that God wants to turn around and redeem for his glory. The enemy wants you to think it's all over. But let me tell you this, some of you have been struggling, you've been fighting, you've had a really hard year. But I want to remind you that the devil on his best day didn't take you out on your worst day. You are still here, you are still fighting, there is still life, there is still a few. What are you talking about? The devil took us all out, literally all of us, took us all out in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) We were all born dead in trespasses and sins and under the power of the devil. (sighs) Again, this is just absolutely blasphemous. Not only should she not be preaching because she's a woman, she's preaching rank heresy and false doctrine and twisting God's word. There is still a future while you're still breathing and God can redeem every broken piece of your past. And he can help to give someone else a future. Notice we're talking about redemption now. God can redeem every broken piece of your past. How about Christ can redeem you? You have been redeemed by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Big difference. We continue. So Jesus broke it, and the Scripture tells us that while he broke it, it continued to multiply. And then I love this part of the text. It says they all ate, and they were all satisfied. And normally we end here. And then we come back next week to church and we think, awesome, I was filled last week. Jesus, I need you to fill me again. But in the day and the hour in which we live in the church, it's not enough just to live miracle to miracle. It's not enough. Because it's what happens between the miracles that is really going to determine the, the, the strength of our Christian walk in the day and the age in which we live. This is nonsense. It's not enough to live miracle to miracle. It's what you do between the miracles. Where are you getting any of this from God's word? None of this is taught there. This is just gobbledygook. Finishes that miracle. And then he says to the disciples, I want you to go and gather 12 basketfuls, which is like a sack over your shoulder of the broken pieces. There was exactly 12 basketfuls left over. It's not an accident. 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples. So he said, I want you to go and get a basket full each 
And then the Bible tells us that he immediately... I want you to go and get a basket full each. That's not what the text says. Okay, let's do this again. Hang on a second here. Mark chapter 6. By the way, the little detail about the little boy, the only gospel that appears in is in the gospel of John. The synoptic gospels do not have that little detail. Now, I want to read the end of this story so you can... She's she's totally mangling the end of the story. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. So Mark chapter six, verse 40, verse 41 now, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And here's what verse 43 says. It doesn't, it doesn't say, and Jesus said, go collect 12 baskets full. That's not what it says, but that's what she says. It says, but here's what the text says. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and fish, and those who ate were 5,000 men. So it doesn't say Jesus sent them out to go collect 12 baskets full. It just says that they happened to collect afterwards, you know, the leftovers, and the leftovers was 12 baskets full. And I'm going to back this up again so you can hear what she's doing with this. She's literally doing violence to this text. This is textual abuse. A sack over your shoulder of the broken pieces. There was exactly 12 basketfuls left over. It's not an accident. 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples. So he said, I want you to go and get a basketful each. No, he didn't. The Bible tells us that he immediately sent them into a storm. This is an omniscient God. He knew where he was sending them. Not all storms are from the devil. Sometimes God allows us to go into a storm because he wants to reveal to us what is already inside of us. Yeah, notice here, they actually went into a, onto the real Sea of Galilee and they experienced a real storm. Okay, so now she's allegorized the storm into about, you know, some storm that God is sending you into in your life. Now, uh, you get what I'm saying here. I mean, this is just nonsense. Often don't know. We think we believe one thing, and it's a storm in life that will reveal to us what we really believe. And so what happened at this part of the Gospels, Jesus, this is the first mass miracle that Jesus had done. Up until now, he's doing one-on-one, and the disciples still don't know the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. They know him as a miracle worker. They know him as a teacher. They know him as a prophet. But they don't know him as Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And it is interesting to me that you can sit in church week after week, and you can sit in the midst of miracles of God, and what's happening through this ministry and through this church across the world is nothing short of a modern-day sign and wonder and miracle. Nothing short of that. Really? So the growth of LifeChurch.tv as a result of the false twisting and telling people what they want to hear, uh, false Bible t- teaching and twisting of uh, Craig Rochelle and him telling itching, scr- you know, scratching itching ears, that that's somehow a modern sign and miracle, close to, you know, Jesus is walking on the water or the feeding of the 5,000. <sighs> Good night. You can be in the midst of all of that. And you can see the miracles of God and hundreds of millions of you versions being downloaded and campuses exploding all around the place through this wonderful ministry. And you can see that influence and you can be sitting in it and you can see the miracle. You can partake of the miracle and you can know all about the miracles of God and not have yet met the God of the miracles. And so Jesus is saying, it's not enough that you just know about my works and my acts. You have got to know me. And I want to know if you know me. 
So he said, you know, by the way, in the Gospel of John, I mean, with the calling of, of the Apostle Andrew, the disciple Andrew, he was the disciple before he was the Apostle, already then the disciples knew Jesus was the Messiah. You know, so this this point of hers doesn't make any sense when you take a look at all of the Gospels together. Uh, yeah. It's the best way to find that out. And he goes up to a mountain to pray. And you think, why? Well, because now his ministry is about to blow up from this point on in the text. Jesus' ministry through the Gospels is going to blow up because the ingredients of the miracle are sitting in the stomachs of 15,000 people, and they're going to go home to their villages and tell everybody about what he just did. Uh, no, actually, again, she hasn't done her homework. Okay, now I told you that John chapter 6 is the only cross-reference where we learn about the little boy, okay? So in John chapter 6, we have John's account here of this same miracle on the same day, okay? And so let me cons- let me consider and let me continue reading. I'll 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 read John chapter 6 and I'll start at verse 11. So Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks he distributed them uh, to those who were seated so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill he told his disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments and the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten and when the disciples when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So Christine Kane says, oh, Jesus' ministry blows up from here, as if it goes into megachurch mode. No, it doesn't. <clears throat> Let me continue reading. So perceiving that they were about to come and make him by force into, uh, make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea began rough because the strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on the land to which they were going. Okay, So clearly we're dealing with the same events, right? Well, let's continue reading and find out if Jesus's ministry just blows up like the way Christine Kane said, right? So on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." So they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said, well, then what sign uh, do you do so that we may believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Okay, They're upset because they want more. They want Jesus to be a bread king to give them bread always, right? And so Jesus says, hey, I am the bread of life. And they're like, eh, come on, Jesus. So they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So next, they don't even believe in him, even after they fed, he fed them yet the day yesterday, right? So Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last days. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died." This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life, it, for, the, for, the, for the life of the world is my own flesh. So then the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his own flesh to eat? So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he will also, will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not, the, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, listen to this, and when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And so after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. Mm -hmm. So immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, you have this discourse where Jesus gives them a tough saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, right? And you know, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you know what happens to his disciples? They leave. After this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. So Christine Kane doesn't know her Bible. She's preaching. She shouldn't be. And she's teaching. She shouldn't be. But she's teaching that Jesus' ministry takes off kind of like, um, you know, megachurch style, like Hillsong after the feeding of the 5,000. And that is a flat-out historical falsehood. That's not what happens after the feeding of the 5,000. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus preaches some tough doctrine. And it results in Jesus' church shrinking to the size of 12. Yeah. How big was Jesus' church on the day when he was crucified? <laughs> How many people were there rooting for him, telling Pontius Pilate not to crucify Jesus? Uh-huh. We continue. She's about to blow up to that extent. You better get on your face on a mountain before God and start praying. So he's praying and... The Bible says now it's about the fourth watch of the night, which takes us to about three o'clock in the morning. So at three o'clock in the morning, he's praying. Then he looks out and the disciples, the scripture says the storm started. They're straining at the oars, which means they're freaking out massively. So they're freaking out. It's dark. They are wondering where Jesus is. I don't know if you've ever been like that. You could have been in an awesome church meeting. And then just hours later, you're wondering, why has God forsaken me? Why am I out in this storm? Why am I here and now it's Wednesday and Sunday Pastor Craig said everything was going to be awesome and now it's Wednesday. And look at my marriage and look at my finances and look at my health and look at my children and I'm in this storm. And you're wondering where God is. I don't know if anyone besides me has ever been there. Where, where are you, God? Where are you? It seems so dark and it seems so dangerous. The interesting thing is Jesus could see them. He could see. He knows where you're at right at this moment, wherever you are listening to this. He knows exactly what's going on. And this is the great thing. It's a perk of being God. He can be with you right in the middle of that storm while he's coming to you to deliver you from the storm. That's what happens when you're God. And so what they didn't realize was that he had asked them to take the broken pieces with them into the boat. And essentially what he was saying, did you ever wonder why broken pieces, why scraps, why fragments? Why, why couldn't he do the miracle again on the other side? Why fish heads? Why fish bones? Why breadcrumbs. Because this is what Jesus was essentially saying to them. I want each of you to take evidence of this miracle today into the storm of tomorrow. Because I want you to remember that the same God that just... What? Jesus nowhere says that. You just gave Jesus words and stuck them in his mouth that he never once spoke. This is nonsense for you on the mountain is the same God that's going to be with you in this boat, is the same God that's going to take you to the other side. You were never gifted. You were never talented. You were never smart enough to do this in your own strength anyway. You've actually never had anything more than five loaves and two fishes. And the same God that did the miracle for you back then is the same God that'll do the miracle for you in the middle of the storm. It doesn't matter what's happening politically. It doesn't matter what's happening socially. It doesn't matter what's happening economically. It doesn't matter. 
What happens with us is the minute we come out of a miracle and we see a negative news report and we see something negative is happening in Wall Street or something negative is happening politically or we look at all the disasters happening around us, we begin to panic as if somehow God fell off the throne. And God's saying, when did you ever think you had enough money in the first place? When did you ever think you had enough gift in the first place? It always was God. It always will be God. It always was Christ alone. It always will be Christ alone. It doesn't matter. You know, a lot of us, we get good with now. We get confident with where we are now. And we forget about back then. When the enemy comes to torment me, I don't start telling him about, oh, I run this global anti-human trafficking organization now. I speak around the world now because this can all change. Governments can change policies and A21 can shut down. People can stop inviting me. No, I don't talk to him about now. That's not where my confidence is. I go back to then. That girl that was in a hospital, unnamed and unwanted, the same God that kept me alive then is the same God that's with me now. That kid that was abused all those years, the same God that somehow protected me in the midst of all of that. He was with me then. He's with me now. Um, Yeah, uh, I want to point this all out. This is autobiography masquerading as Christian theology. This is not Christian theology. This is just her giving autobiography. They used to speak to 20 kids in the backside of nowhere in Australia. The same God that plucked me out of anonymity and obscurity then is the same God that's with me now. It always was Jesus. It always will be Jesus. Whatever is before me, it always was him. And he's doing what he's always done. He's continuing to build his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God. Whatever happens economically, politically, morally, socially, environmentally, Jesus is doing what he's always done. He's building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God ever. He's doing what he's always done. So he goes out to the disciples and they're freaking out. And this is what happens when you get your eyes off your fragments of your broken pieces and you get your eyes on the wind and the waves. What happens is Jesus can come out to you, the same Jesus. This is what happens when you get your eyes off your broken fragments and pieces from your last miracle. I seem to remember that uh, one of the gospel writers, I think it's Matthew, gives us a little bit more of the story and tells us about Peter walking on the water at this point. And his eyes were never on the broken fragments in the fish heads in the basket in the boat. They were on Jesus. And when they were off Jesus, he ended up sinking. Notice the emphasis is always taken away from Jesus. Our focus is always taken away from Christ in the way these people mangle God's word. They make it about themselves. They make it about something they've done. And now it's it's no longer keeping your eyes on Jesus. It's keeping your eyes on the broken fragment pieces and the fish heads and the baskets from the leftovers. Unbelievable. Gotten with you doing miracles all the day before and you don't even recognize him. Because Jesus uses the storms of life to reveal a different aspect of himself to us. They knew the Jesus that did the fish and loaves. They didn't know the Jesus that walked on water. I don't know what miracle you might need right now. But Jesus is coming in a new form, in a new way, to do a new thing in your life. Yeah, um, this text doesn't teach any of that. You're just, this is all smoke and mirrors. 
back in what he used to do in the way that he used to do it. Allow room for him to come in a different way to deliver you from this storm. You don't need the Jesus that multiplies the fish and loaves when you're in a storm in the middle of an ocean. You uh, what are you talking about? That's the same Jesus walks on water. Don't think that the very God that's coming to deliver you is the God that's coming to destroy you. He's actually coming to you in a different form. He gets in the boat and the disciples look at him. And the Bible says he's disappointed, not because they were scared in the storm, but because they had not understood the miracle of the loaves and fishes. I wonder, friend, if you're someone that's been sitting in church for today's your first day, or perhaps weeks, months, or years. And you've known the God of, you've known the miracles of God. You've seen signs and wonders, and you've watched God do amazing things in your midst. Let's never be a church that just knows the miracles of God. Let's be a church that is intimately acquainted with the God of the miracles in Jesus' name. Well, as I told you, we're... Man, wow, what a mess. Unbelievable. See, that tells you about the um, the level of uh, biblical expertise on the part of the so-called pastors of Hillsong. That should tell you something. She's a product of Brian Houston's teaching and preaching. And what she preaches is absolutely reprehensible in her mangling of Scripture. She learned that from somebody. She learned it from Brian Houston. And she's not somebody who should be listened to as if she has a word to bring from us from God, because she doesn't. She twists God's word and preaches herself. And that is part and parcel of the major problem of, you know, what passes for preaching from churches like Hillsong and LifeChurch.tv and others. Pray that Christ brings his church to repentance for this nonsense. All right. We are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>